if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. We will pick up our passage where we left off last week, and we'll read verses 4 through 7, and our focus this morning will be particularly verse number 4. But actually, I'm going to read verse 2 with that, because it very well may be um, important to the context. So, verse number 2, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Again, Father, we come to you. Um, as a child comes to his father. We're reminded, Lord, even on this Father's Day, of the great treasure that we have in you. Father, that we are children of the Most High. As my little ones are able to approach me, to appeal to me, to ask good things of me. Father, it does not compare to the love that you have for your children. Father, so much that you would willingly give your only son on behalf of sinners like us that we may be able to approach you even now as children of God. So, Father, we praise you for that. We praise you for the ability to pray to come boldly to the throne room of grace, Father, seeking help and aid. And that's exactly why we're here. Father, we're here because we need you. We're here because we need help. We're here, Father, because we need aid. Father, we're here because we need more grace. I mean, we know that you are not stingy with it. Father, if you are willing to give us your own son, how shall you not also in him freely give us all things? So... This morning, this moment, Father, we ask you for a little bit of those all things. Father, that as we approach your word, um, that it would not be mere logic um, or reason by which constitutes our application, but that the Spirit of God, with that logic and reason, Father, with true minds and hearts, would take the word of God and use it to accomplish an eternal work in our souls. Father, that you'd make us more like your son. That we would embody, Father, this text this morning in a more faithful manner. Not perfect, but definitely further along in the progress um, that you've called us to. Such that all the world would know, Father, when they look at us. And that we are changing more and more, Father, from glory to glory into the image of your son. Father, may that be manifest upon us this morning. So God, help us to go faithful to the text. Um, not with eloquent words, Father, but, um, but with faithfulness. Not only in the giving, but also the receiving. And Father, may you use it to your end. And if it's to your end, we know that it would be to our good and to our edification. So Father, go with us now uh, for the next hour and use it, Father, to that end. And we thank you so much in Christ's name. Amen. I mean, you can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. And we'll just jump right in this morning. 
Last week, we finished a case study. A case study was with Euodia and Syntyche, related to unity within the body there at Philippi. And no doubt that application flows down to each of us, particularly here at Christ Bible Church. And as we enter into this portion of the text, there may be a transition, maybe not. But now he, he, he begins to wrap up this chapter and really the whole book with what we might look at as rapid-fire commands. Rapid-fire exhortations and exaltations. We're in chapter 4. We're closing the end of the letter relatively short um, but jam-packed with so many things. And, and it may be that these are somewhat disconnected yet pointed for particular reasons. It's hard to tell whether or not it's actually connected to the previous verse, to Euodia and Syntyche, or to unity, um, or they're simply isolated commands. But it could be that it is connected. It could be that because of their disunity, that they have been forfeiting certain privileges, and even disobeying certain commands. That in the sin that they had committed through personal offense, as we looked at last week, there is no doubt a forfeiture of certain rights, certain privileges that belong to a child of God. And in this passage of Scripture that we read from verses 4 to 7, um, we see subsequent to that um, case study, three commands. Uh, one gospel preacher entitled this portion a trilogy of gospel duties. And it could be in Euodia and Syntyche's little debacle um, that they must be called back to a joyful life. No doubt in the midst of their sin and, and lack of fellowship, that joy was robbed. No, it may be that they're called back to a gentle life, a moderate life. No doubt as they entangled themselves one with another, that the church was affected and their lives were affected and they were being called back to being meek and gentle and moderate. And also, no doubt with sin. As sin creeps into our life, um, the peace of God is lost. One thing that will certainly happen when we're in the midst of sin, particularly sin against a brother or sister, is that that conclusion, or maybe more but not less, our joy will be gone, our gentleness will not be characteristic of us, and we will no doubt be ruled by anxiety and stress um, and the lack of recon reconciliation and fellowship with, with not only God's people, but to do with God. It affects our worship. We looked at that last week, Matthew's call um, to those who have received an offense. It is imperative that they leave their gift at the altar before they give it. Go, reconcile with your brother, then come. Our, our, our lack of unity and sin in our lives affects our ability to come boldly to the throne room of grace. Thus it may very well be that the Apostle Paul here, in lieu of what has happened, is calling them back to something that they've lost could also be just a general call to believers at Philippi. That this is one of the gospel duties contained in that initial charge in chapter 4 and verse 1 to stand firm. That if we are going to be able to stand firm and stand fast against the enemies, 
that present themselves that are individual doors, but particularly the doors of the church. We're going to do everything that we can to stand in opposition um, to them as they stand in opposition to the face of God, to the work of the church, and to the furtherance of the gospel. Um, what must Philippi know? What must they do? What, how must they obey? How will they stand firm? Well, visible unity is not enough. There must be more than just simply gathering together. It is a unity and a gathering characterized by certain marks. As we gather this morning, think about it. It is not enough that we just simply gather. It is not enough that we simply gather around the Bible. Um, heretics are doing that this morning. There should be something that marks our gathering. And, and, and in the same way that there, is something, there are things that should be marking our Christian lives. Our Christian lives. That at, that at a fundamental level, there are certain things that must be, that should be characteristics of our Christian life because really they must be. Have you ever thought about the Christian life in somewhat of that way? Um, that, that, that if you could boil it down to certain things that make Christianity Christian, that make you who you are in Christ, at the most fundamental level, sure that sometimes there'll be more, but, but there should be at least a base, right? Certain realities that should be fundamental to your Christian life. It would be similar to the illustration of building a vehicle, a car, an automobile. Right? There are certain things that we can stack upon the elements that make it, but there are some things that you can't, you can't operate a vehicle without. That, 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 all, that, that our parking lot is filled this morning with different, different um, automobiles. But at the most fundamental level, they all contain something of the same. That make it move, make it functionable, make it operate according to its purpose. Certain parts to the engine, the transmission, the drivetrain, the, 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 the frame. There's certain things, the wheels, the, you know, the, there's a fuel that is, that is necessary. Um, and like building a car, there are certain elements that are non-negotiable on the road. You have to have it if you're going to move. And in some way, some similar manner, maybe that's true of Christianity. What in the Christian life is non-negotiable, I want to ask you this morning? And in just a more pointed way as we approach verse number 4. I want to ask you a question concerning joy. As you think about the Christian life, maybe you, you, you boil it down to faith and repentance. Maybe there's certain other elements. Definitely faith and repentance are necessary coming into the Christian life. It's a necessary gift from God to be born of the Spirit. But as you enter into the Christian life, what are the gifts that God has given to you um, such that are necessary? Consider taking the text this morning as a unit and dealing with all three commands. But after reading and studying a bit on joy, my own struggles with it in my life, certain bouts of depression, the overwhelming number of Christians that deal with it as well, and the overwhelming number of Christians who I believe have an unbiblical view of joy, considering the reality that Paul saturates this epistle with joy, I thought I'd give an entire sermon to it today. 
Because it does seem to be one of those fundamental elements of Paul's life. You know, I used to believe that joy was somewhat of a, of a, of a negotiable. I used to think that it was somewhat of a... Um, icing on the cake, if you will. But it was something that was good, but not necessary. It was like dessert in the evening. Something that's desirable, but it's not the meat and it's not the potatoes. And I would say that, that there's many Christians out there that believe and look at joy um, in somewhat of a similar manner. This morning, I would rather you see it somewhat different. Not in a take it or leave it type of mentality that joy is good if I have it. And when I've had it, it is somewhat delightful and it may even be desired, but not necessary I would like to commend it to you this morning as one of the dominant characteristics of true saving faith. This morning, um, we'd like to begin just with somewhat of a panoply of verses. As we introduce the text to kind of support that reality. But today it's a popular attitude, particularly among the fundamentalist circles that I was a part of. Not all, but many. And it went something like this. The Christian life is, is more about obedience in the sense of doing your duty. And be sure to obey God's commands, and that's great. If you can't, just do it anyway. The feelings, affections, emotions are somewhat inconsequential. And, and, and there's a reality to that, no doubt. And that's not to say that when someone says that they don't mean well, I know that they do. What they mean is it's, it's generally the, the result of a reaction to those who are slaves to their affections. You know, as biblicists, as biblical Christians, we don't want to be slaves to our natural emotions. We, do, we cannot be dominated by them. They cannot dictate who we are. We're not to sit around and ignore the duty and responsibility that we have as fathers until we feel like it. But neither are we to relegate affections. And this morning, particularly joy to such a marginal place in the Christian life as to a take-it-or-leave-it position, as if, you, as if you can live a Christian life with or without it and be totally fine. I'm going to argue that you can't live without it and truly honor God, that it too is your duty to be joyful in Christ. But the difficulty of arguing, just do your duty whether you feel it or not, is that when you approach this text in a few moments, you're going to find that it is part of your duty. That it is your responsibility to be joyful in Christ. That it is your responsibility as a Christian that will stand accountable to God one day because we are or we are not. That in a similar manner as um, you will stand before God one day and be measured objectively upon raising your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, you too will be held accountable um, and give for the objective command to rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I say rejoice. But prior to delving into that, I want to give you just a few texts from Scripture that will kind of illustrate for us the critical nature of joy. The crucial reality that it is fundamental to the Christian life. Um, so as I go through these, I don't expect you to write all the verses down, but you may want to write the reference and then the conclusion. Go back and look later. For example, in Romans 14, 17, we read last week, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and joy, or righteousness and peace and joy 
in the Holy Spirit. That Paul concludes in this portion of the text and further, that the kingdom of God, that sphere of God's rule in the hearts of men, is joy. It is joy. It doesn't just contain joy. It's not good if you have joy while you're within the kingdom of God, but actually to be ruled by the king himself is joy. Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, with the, which will be to all people. That the gospel is the good news. And that good news is a good news of joy. Hebrews 12, 2 shows us, illustrates for us, that the work of Christ culminating in the cross itself, that, that was, was that God Himself in Christ was fueled by and for joy. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That was one of the things he's reaching for as he approaches the cross and no doubt secures the faithfulness therein. It was for the joy. We also see that that's not only characteristic of our Lord in His human life and His, in his, his, his ultimate work, but that joy too is to characterize the, the beginning and the end of the Christian life. Matthew thirteen forty four again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That just as Jesus Christ is going for the joy to the Christian in the, in the, in the opening uh, of his Christian life, as he birthed into the family of God, see that treasure in a field as he sells all that he has, why? For the joy that is within that treasure. But not only that, the joy characterizes the end of the Christian life, as well as our beginning of eternity. Matthew 25, 21, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful service, servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your, of, our, of your Lord. Not only that, but joy is the character and occupation of heaven itself. Not only will it be a joy to enter in, but while we're there, joy will be characteristic of heaven itself. That even today, Matthew or, um, Luke tells us in Luke 15.10, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That joy is, 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 is characteristic in the very occupation of the angels themselves. In the presence of God. Can you imagine being in the presence of God and being without joy? I'd almost conclude, as a result of that, that the joylessness of of many Christians today, and the joylessness of not being a Christian um, is because of the lack of the presence of God in one's life. That to be in God's presence, I don't believe you can be there without joy. Joy marks out, not only that, joy marks out the activity and the character of the Christian life itself from beginning to end. Galatians 5.22 speaks of the fruit that is born out of the Spirit's union to you and I as children of God. And you know what the second, um, the, the second of that list is? It's love, but also joy and peace. That this is the fruit of the Spirit of God living in your life. 1 Peter 1.8, it is arguably the dominating characteristic of all true believers. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Whom having not seen you love, speaking of Christ, Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice. It is the expression of the joy. Rejoicing is that, that expression of the joy culminating in your heart. But He says you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Romans 15.13 um, teaches us that joy is a product 
a true saving faith and actually produces hope. You want to be a hopeful Christian? Be a joyful Christian. He says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. That God is a God of hope. And as He fills you with joy and peace in your inner men, because of faith, He's arguing, that you will abound in hope by the power of the very Spirit of God. John fifteen eleven and John 17 teaches us that Jesus' words, when embodied, when communed, when flowing through us, produce joy in those who receive them and obey Him by faith. John fifteen eleven. These things I've spoken to you, he says, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. The activity that God has given us in, in things like prayer are actually one of the purposes is to produce joy in our life. John sixteen twenty four. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, he says. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. That one of the goals of prayer is to be joy is, is, is the product of joy. And that joy is the product of serving the Lord. Luke ten seventeen. When the seventy return, you know what it says? They returned with a joy. That joy too is the goal of ministry of those ministered to. As I minister in in uh, you know, underneath the tutorship of the apostle himself, and as men engage in the ministry um, from a pulpit or or from a pastoral role, or even just from a membership perspective, one of the things that we should have in mind in in correlation with the apostle Paul, one of our goals should be to minister in such a way to produce joy in one another. 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Philippians 1.25, as we looked at months ago, um, he says, and I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That Paul labored for joy in the lives of others. This was part of his ministry to them. It is arguably the, one of the distinctive marks of the New Testament church. Acts thirteen fifty two, And the disciples were filled with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. Were you aware before this of simply the overwhelming reality of joy in the life of the Christian? How it is to mark out not only the beginning and the end, but the middle, the, the, the activity of this life. And that was just a small portion and an excerpt out of the New Testament. This is not to mention the wealth of joy found in places like the Psalms. One Psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 36, Psalm 16 is another. It is without a doubt one of the dominant themes of Scripture that we, to point out, that God, God, uh, intending to point out so much ink is spilled on the pages of the Word concerning it, such that we can't read the New Testament without being overwhelmed with joy, unless we're just blind to it. Unless we're blind to it. Are you aware of the critical nature of such joy? That it should be one of the elements that characterize our Christian lives. That it is more than simply a second helping at the Christian table of those who are good little boys and girls. But it is the stuff that Christians are made of. That we are to be characterized as a joyful people. That is, someone came from the outside this morning and they described us. One of my desires is that they would say, man, what a joyful people. Like, I don't understand 
what they were so joyful about. Other than they said that it was in their God. But they were happy people in the Lord. And they have really no reason to be. I mean, look at the world all around us. I, can, I go into no other institution and find such people as I found this morning. Such that I'm a little skeptical that it's even real. Can such a people exist? I would say yes. And such a people can exist because Jesus died to save and to procure such a people. That He died also to make a joyful people. Such throughout the ages, Christians have determined that joy is just that. Characteristic of the Christian life. Martin Lloyd-Jones concludes um, in one of his writings that joy was the thing that Paul desired of these people at Philippi above all else. He says, quote, It was their heritage as Christian people. As children of God, he argues, it was their birthright, speaking of joy. He goes on to say in another place, nothing is more characteristic of the first Christians than this element of joy. Another place, he says, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and a joyful church. End quote. That it saturates the Word of God and it too should saturate our lives. Another commentator, Gordon Fee, says, joy lies at the heart of the Christian experience of the gospel. It is the fruit of the Spirit in any truly Christian life serving as primary evidence of the Spirit's presence. It is unmitigated, untrammeled joy as the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. Richard Baxter says, delight, that old Puritan says, delighting in God, in His Word, and in His ways is the flower and life of true Christian religion. And Paul would agree, I think. Not in the same words, but I think that he's on board. Thus, in Philippians chapter number 4, he issues, whether it's in, tan or in, in, in correlation with previous because of their, their, their forfeiture in the midst of their sin, or maybe he's just trying to urge the, uh, the, the church at Philippi in this direction because of its essential nature to the Christian life. But, but, but it, it impel he is compelled in verse number 4 then to issue the command. And that's what it is. If you're taking notes, note number one, after that introduction of the, the crucial nature, the critical nature of joy in the life of the Christian, but number one, that true joy is a command, church. True joy is a command. There is a command to joyfulness in the Christian life. And not only that, but within the presence of the church. Um, and that, say, how do we know that? Because in the, in the original, this comes in the form of a command. This is not... So, so when you... When you look at it, there are, there are statements that are what we refer to as indicatives. They are statements of fact. And you can look at the original and you can determine by the form of it what they are. But Paul is not here simply stating a, 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 a matter of fact um, or a statement of fact. But he is, he is stating an imperative. This is what we consider to be a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an exhortation. It's not a statement of fact. But it is... Command. And it is present um, tense and it is active, meaning that the imperative is upon the object that is being commanded to act in accordance with that command. And, and, and it's in a present form, meaning that it is to be presently obeyed. There is to be no delay. That you could actually translate this, be continually joyful, because it's present, be continually joyful, at all times, you have that modifier there always, at all times and in all circumstances. 
And then, if that's not enough, the Apostle Paul is going to change the present tense to the future, as if they say, well, look, you know, presently, but I'm not sure that we can obey that command. I mean, look all around. He says, again, I will say, future tense, if you have any objections, I'm going to say it again. I will say, rejoice. Again, I will say, be continually rejoicing, is how you could translate that. Be continually joyful at all times in all circumstances. And I'll say it again. I will say, be continually rejoicing. This is not unique to the Apostle Paul. It's not unique to the New Testament. Psalm 31, 33.1 says, Rejoice in the Lord. O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Psalm 37.4, one of my favorite verses. And for whatever reason, until this Weak, it just the imperative of it did not fall upon me like it did this week. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your hearts. That, 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 that phrase there, delight yourself, is an imperative. It's a command. Church, you as individuals, church, us as a body, God lays upon us the responsibility that when we are, are, are gloomy in the things of God, in the things of the Lord, continually sorrowful, that we are commanded to bring ourselves out and delight ourselves in the Lord. To find pleasure in Him. That this is a command. Not only that, Matthew 5.12, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets were before you. Even in the midst of persecution, he's arguing, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. That yes, there is this to be this external expression, this culmination of that joy, but it results from that gladness of heart. And that we are compelled, not only compelled, but, but commanded. Um... To fulfill that. To be that. That this is a command. That we should thus conclude that on that docket, on that great day, we'll stand and give an account not only for objective external commands. Did you do this or did you not? Did you lie? Did you steal? Were you faithful in this area? But also, were you joyful? Did you rejoice as a result of that? But what do we mean by joy and rejoicing? If we're to follow the command, we must first know what it means. So let's begin with what it doesn't mean. What doesn't it mean? Well, it should first be noted that the command for true Christian joy is not what some might expect. What we're not calling for today, nor is God commanding some shallow, insincere cheerfulness with a fake smile because your mom or your dad or your boss said, like, you should, because it's affecting the customers. Nor are we talking about some superficial, natural giddiness. It keeps a smile on someone's face as if they're indifferent to the painful circumstances of life. And we all know people like that. You know, you've met them. They're just naturally peppy, overly happy, easily excitable. It's their mission of life to get everyone to smile regardless. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls those people the most depressing people in the world. <laughs> and it's true. It's so true. I found that most of those people are some of the most depressed people you'll find, actually. I have faces in my mind now of just some of the most seemingly encouraging people, always with a smile on their face. Like when you have actual relationships and conversations with them, um, every one of them have been on antidepressants. Every one of them are struggling through life. They're seeking to compensate for their actual lack of joy. And that's many of us. Come this morning with a smile on your face. You know, why? Because you know that that's the Christian thing to do. 
And in some sense, that's commendable. Yet at the same time, that does not necessitate that you've actually obeyed this command. At the same time, nor is joy simply a feeling. That is the result of circumstances around us. I'm convinced that while joy is more than simply a feeling, so we also need to say joy is not less than an emotion or an affection. I prefer the term affection, godly affections. Some people want to take any emotion out of the feet and feeling out of Christianity because they believe that actually emotions or affections can't be governed or commanded. They seem to be something that happened to us. Not something that we actually do. We seem to be actually the reaction. Uh, Our emotions seem to be the reaction. Thus they can't be governed. I'm going to argue that that's different. That's that's not actually true. Now it's hard. It's difficult. It's a long process. But God can actually conform us and transform us into being the people that we ought to be such that we are joyful people. We are fearful people. We are godly people. We are faithful people. Such that when the circumstances of life are around us, we react in accordance with God's truth. Why? Because we are that type of person. It's more than a simply do. It's an are. It's a be. We are to be in a state. Uh, We are to be a certain type of person. In our children, the goal is not simply to move their hands, but to cultivate a heart of character such that when someone, such when even when they're not um, receive, they have not received an explicit command um, in their, their character compels them to respect other people. See, this is the way that we should to parent. That as fathers and as mothers, um, as they mature, we desire that, that we raise the, the, the little boys and the little girls into the men and women that they ought to be. Because the, the, the book cannot be written. It is too long of all the do's and don'ts of life. But if you raise the right kind of man, and you cultivate the right kind of character in your little girl, then when the circumstances come, they will react accordingly. Why? Because they are that type of person. That's the goal. So joy is more than just simply a feeling, but I would argue it's not less than a feeling. That it is an affection. That it is an affection that yields to the truth of God and responds appropriately to the circumstances. Jesus Himself was an affectionate person. And one illustration to, to, to or one text to illustrate this is in John sixteen twenty, and where we actually see rejoicing and we see joy. I mean, in that text, our Lord gives an illustration of weeping and lamenting. He says, "Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament." He's speaking of His going away, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers anguish or the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one will take from you. You know, it's sometimes easy to mimic joy and rejoicing. You know what's almost impossible to mimic? Weeping. True sorrow. Some skilled people can do it. Some fast, there's some fascinating actors out there and hypocrites that know how to put on that type of face. But most people cannot. And the contrast is there, right? That, that, that now you'll be sorrowful and weeping, but there's coming a day just as a baby's born. And you all know what that's like. You can't mimic that. You can't make that up. You can't muster that up. Um, you, can't, you can't fake that. 
That the joy that comes with it is right and appropriate as a baby has been brought into this world. But it is, it is an emotion. It is an affection. It is something that pours out of you in which we rejoice. This is what he's arguing. That yes, it's, 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 it's not simply an affection to be, to be ruled by, but, but in accordance with truth, um, there are certain ways that you should affect or feel or emote in certain circumstances. And that's what we're talking about. So, so it's not to be divorced from a feeling. We cannot kidnap joy from the realm of the affections as if it is just a blind duty detached from the rest of our person. Now just grit your teeth and bear it. Smile. Put on a happy face. It's more than that. And nor is feeling to be divorced from the mind and intellect. John MacArthur says, quote, Christian joy is not an emotion on top of a simple motion. It's a feeling on top of a fact. It's an emotional response to what I know to be true about my God. It is an affectionate response rightly yielded to the truth of God. So God commands us in response to the truth about Him to feel, to emote, to affect in a certain manner. To be joyful. That's the idea. That we as Christians are not simply to weigh out logically all of the data, come to a conclusion... Um, modify our external behavior, but we are to be affected on the inner man by the truth that God gives us. Right? He takes out our old heart and He gives us a new one. He gives us new desires, new affections that are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are whole people. That our mind, our heart, and our hands are all tied together. They feed one another. That's the importance of just, of just washing yourself over with the truth. And as that truth is, 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 is taken root in our lives, it should produce some type of fruit, not only in our hands, but too in our affections. Such that there are places in Scripture that God can say things like, not only do justice, but love mercy. Micah chapter 6, verse number 8. Not only this morning be givers as we take up our offering, but 2 Corinthians 9, be cheerful givers. Be cheerful about it. It should produce that your giving should be, should be modified by a certain type of motivation and inclination of the affections. Such that pastors and elders who shepherd the flock of God are not to do it regardless as they grit their teeth and bear it. But 1 Peter chapter 5, they're to do it willingly and eagerly. We are commanded not only to do, but also to do with the appropriate attitude that God actually commands throughout the Scriptures the entirety of the range of our emotions. And as we submit to God's truth by the power of the Spirit, He transforms our entire uh, being such that now we're not only to do, but we are to love doing. We are lovers of good things, He commands in one place. where He says that we're not only to fear God, but to be reverent people. That we are not merely to hope on occasion, but we're convinced to be a, a hopeful people. That this is the reality of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I think that if this is true, and I think the conclusion is inescapable, the joylessness in the Christian life um, is disobedience to that command. Um, and that it is as much of a sin as it is... Thou shalt not steal. That the command to rejoice always, we're commanded to obey that command. To do otherwise, to have a life characterized by a gloominess and a depression, is to disobey the divine imperative. Thus, 
It would lead men like Spurgeon to say things like, If any of you take, have taken a gloomy view of religion, I beseech you to throw that gloomy view away at once. If God is real, His truth is true, and that reality has been expressed in your soul, but also throughout all the world and all the ages, if God is who He says He is, then there is no way we could be in His presence without joy. Psalm chapter 16, verse number 11. In His presence is the fullness of joy. It says, if you're not still convinced, read Deuteronomy 28, 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart. For the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies. That Even Israel's commands, uh, their faithfulness, their covenant obedience, was not only determined by um, a black and white checklist, but that checklist was to be colored by the joy and gladness of heart, such that, that, that disobedience to it, formless mechanicalism of Christianity, um, characterized, uh, was, they were subject to the curses of God. Joylessness, I argue, is foreign to the biblical thought and should be to Christian practice. Give you a definition from another man. Um, joy is the affection produced in the soul. When one finds delight, pleasure, or satisfaction in something and then responds to it with gladness. We could insert there um, as Christians that joy is the affection produced in the soul when one finds delight, pleasure, and satisfaction in God and then rightly, appropriately responds with gladness. So the person who says, just do your duty, don't worry about your feelings, is, is really a confusing statement in light of Scripture. Why? Because it is your duty to feel. I agree, do your duty. But therein lies the issue, doesn't it? It is your responsibility to, to, to be joyful, to feel appropriately in light of God's truth. And joy would be part of that as well. Now, number two, not only is it to be, not only is it a command, but this command is colored um, or modified by another word. Uh, this true, too, this true joy too is to be constant. Like if it wasn't bad enough, you know, uh, that God would lay upon us this demand that seemingly we can't control because because affections or reactions upon us, and we can't always control those, and just say, like, you know, be joyful. Um, he actually commands it to be constant. That not only are we to rejoice, but we're to rejoice always. Literally, be continually rejoicing always. At all times, in all places, in all circumstances, rejoice. You know? Again, in that moment, like we might be thinking, Philippi might be thinking, again, that a little too much. I mean, I understand that there's a command to rejoice, Paul. Pastor, I understand that there's no way in the world that that standard can cross such boundaries as to demand it all the time. Right? Like I understand. I look back and see times in my life that, 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 that it was more than appropriate. I should have rejoiced and I didn't. For that I repent. I ask God to help me. But don't you think it's just a little unrealistic to think that this should be characteristic of us at all times and all places? Who can do that? And isn't that just the nature of the law that should drive us to Christ even more? Let me just say, like in my inner man, I totally agree. Like I, I relate to that statement. Like I get you. I sit with a pastor and I'm like, I know, brother. Seems like it's impossible. I can sympathize with that demeanor. In me, you will find a friend. 
And not a good one on some days with that. Why? Because I understand the constraints. But the reality, the problem with that is, is like, I'm not the one requiring it of you. God is. He lays the demands. And listen, He doesn't lay the demands without some sense of level of, re, of, of reality. Neither God nor Paul. But God's expectations are not like ours. The reality is, is that I can lay more upon people than I realize. I can put too much up on my children, and I have. And if I'm not careful, it can exasperate them to anger and wrath. I can ask someone within the church to do something because I'm not omniscient. Like I don't realize it's too much for them to bear at this time. And in those cases, it's imperative that you, someone, appeal to me, communicate the reality because I'm not omniscient. I can lay upon certain people too many things. I've done it in the past, and I'll probably do it in the future. I am fine. And you will as well. But, but when God writes the commands, He's not unrealistic. It's not like He didn't know what happened to you today. Like He knew what the church at Philippi was going through. He understood the very secrets of their heart. He knew the warfare that was going on, not only visible, but also invisible. He knew the intricacies of the attack that was upon them. He knew the yoke that they bore in their hearts. He understood their inadequacies. And if you're like most people in this congregation, you recognize that He knows all of them because He orchestrated and ordained all of them. That the very circumstances that we may bring this charge against someone or against God Himself, this is too much, O Lord. We forget it's the same God who knows better than that because He orchestrated all the circumstances that you're in. That this in reality is not too demanding. God would not be like the Egyptians who say, build this, erect this structure, yet I'm not going to give you any straw to make the brick. And he is not like the tyrants in Egypt to, who, who, who seek to place a yoke of bondage upon their citizens that they cannot bear. God is a gracious God, an understanding God. He is the one that formed all of the circumstances. And therefore, it is imperative this morning that you not walk away with an, with, with a, an overbearing sense of the God of heaven, Jehovah, and of Christ as if he's demanding more than 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 then you can bear. God knows. And God lays this upon you. Why? Because clearly it is possible. It is not too constraining. Nor is Paul clueless. You know? Like Paul. You say, God understands. Paul understands. As he pins this, he knows their enemies. He's identified them. He calls them to stand firm. Like these are military terms and challenges. That Paul's aware even in his own perspective, he's arguably one of the great, in one of the greatest trials of his life. He's in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, awaiting his, his, his death. If it wasn't enough, according to chapter 1, there's Christians out there, quote-unquote, preaching in such a way to cause him even more grief, intentionally striving to hurt him. He's been abandoned by much of the church. He's standing in opposition to Nero in the world. He's about to lose his life, yet at the same time, he gives us a preeminent human example and rejoices all throughout the book. Isn't it amazing? You know? Like, and, I, and, I, and I gripe and complain over last week. You know? 
Again, I start to read the apostle himself. I start to think on Christ who took himself, but for the joy that took upon himself a yoke that is beyond anything that I have or ever will do. And yet he maintains a constant joy because that's what's available to those that are in Christ. Thus, he says in Philippians, no less than 16 times. And the entire book is just is just laid over with the joy behind every precept and exhortation. He says, but no less than 16 explicit times or alludes to rejoice, rejoicing or joy. And what this teaches us immediately is that God expects us to have joy all the time, regardless of circumstances. Such that it culminates and takes the form of rejoicing as it did in Acts chapter 16. As they're being beaten, bruised, and battered. Paul and Silas are there in the jail. Every right to complain. Flesh probably leaking from their bodies. Being bloodied up and bruised. They pray and sing praises to God in the midnight hour. You say, that's the apostle. No, that's the stuff that Christians are made of. That's what Christ accomplishes. In our lives. That's the fruit of the Spirit when rightly embraced. Thus, James chapter 1, verse 2 James could write, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or various trials. That's why Paul could say in Romans 5 and verse 3 We glory in tribulations. We glory. Now, at the same time, it's not to say that we're indifferent to the pains of life. Again, this is not a superficial type of plastic or fake smile. We're not saying put on a mask here. We're saying that, that, that the exceeding gladness of heart pours out of the mouth. And at the same time, lives and is bred even in the midst of seemingly um, opposing realities. Okay? That, that joy is not indifferent to the pains of life. Nor is it mutually exclusive to the heaviness or the sorrows of this world. That you can have in this life a sorrow, yet at the same time rejoice. 2 Corinthians 6, 9, verse 10 is unknown. He's giving contrast. He's telling them in some sense, giving his own testimony in the spirit of his life. He says, as unknown, yet well known. As dying, we live. As chastened, we're not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Yet always rejoicing. You say, I don't know if this is even possible. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, like following our example. It is. This is a real life experience. Yet always rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 7, 4. Not many verses after. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. And this is characteristic too of all Christians. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6. Um, speaking of Thessalonia, or the, the, the church at Thessalonica, you became followers of us, of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. It is a reality that God affords and gives to His people. He commends to you this morning that, that, that Paul was not clueless as to what was going on around him. He wouldn't just put his head in the sand and ignore the pains of the world. No, he actually says, I'm sorrowful the way the world is. It breaks my heart because of all the animosity that God's people endure. I'm sorrowful about all the pain that is around me. I'm sorrowful over my kinsmen according to the flesh. They won't come to Christ. I'm praying that the nation of Israel, my brothers according to the flesh, you know, they come. Even in Philippians chapter 3, with tears, 
with tears. He anguished over a certain group of people. Yet verses later, he rejoices at what God is doing. They say, man, that still sounds like too much. How am I supposed to do that? We are to do it in the Lord. Number three, the true joy is caused. It is caused. It is caused by a right understanding and true submission to God in Christ. It's caused by communion with the Lord. That's what the key phrase here in verse number four of chapter four, rejoice always is in the Lord. Underline that. Like, so, so the key phrase here is not to just rejoice or to be joyful. And although we are by nature, I think, joyful people, I think we come out of the womb, you know, and when, when the time is right, yes, there is a sense in which uh, immediately we're liars from the moment. You know, sin is a part of us. But even this morning, you know, I can see my little boy, just a joyful spirit. You know, like, this is who we are. The danger of that is, is that when our joy is in other things, right? The, the danger is this morning that we are not a joyful people inherently. Um, the difficulty, the, uh, the great sin of mankind um, is that our joy is in other things. That we delight and take pleasure um, in things other than the Lord. That's why our joy vacillates. That's why our, we are not happy all of the time. Why? Because our joy is sourced and rooted in things that change. You know? Like if your joy is resting in the relationships of this life, no, even if it's a faithful man or a faithful woman, one day it is destined to fail. Why? Because we fail, brothers and sisters. We are men and we are, be- we are men at best. And men at best vacillate. And we that are women, faithful women, true. But women at their best vacillate. Ebb and flow with the circumstances and with the times. Thus, if our circumstances or, or if our joy is resting in relationships, circumstances, prominence, power, finances, this or that, know this, that it will vacillate. You will wake up one day and all is gone. And what an, exa- what a, what an introspective time. And how many times I've woke up, something has happened. My joy is robbed. And in that moment, I am so convicted. Why? Because I've realized in that moment that I have been idolatrous and worshiping the wrong thing. That our joy is attached to worship. Our delight is attached to adoration. And that we are to receive all things in the Lord. Not to receive all things as the Lord, as our gods. But that we are to root our joy. And that our joy can be always abounding. It can't, we can't obey the command in Christ insofar as our joy is rooted in the Lord. Thus this old Puritan Thomas Manton would say, God's all-sufficiency and heaven's happiness are everlasting grounds of joy. The Lord Jesus Christ is to be the ultimate source and joy, uh, object of our joy. And as long as our eye remains fixed upon Him, our joy too will be unchanging and immovable. And that was the ground of Paul's joy. How in the world could he maintain such rejoicing all throughout the letter at Philippi, but that he fixed his eyes on the Lord? Philippians 1.4 He rejoices because his fellowship in the gospel with him. Philippians 1.18, What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Philippians 1.25, His ministry was to produce joy in them. 
Philippians 2.2, his joy was rooted in the unity of the body. There, we could go on and on. His joy was rooted in Christ's activity within his life and the life of God's people, as well as in the life of the world, as the gospel was preached throughout all the world. It was manifested in his life in a panoply of ways. Thus he had grounds to rejoice. To put it the way that one brother puts it, he says, True and lasting joy comes from the experience of the all-satisfying vision of the glory of Christ displayed in the eyes of your heart. When you can see him as he is, then you can speak like Habakkuk did in chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. May this be true of us. But it will only be true if our ultimate eyes are fixed upon Christ. So the application. If this is the case, we are commanded. It is central and crucial to the Christian life. We're to do it always. We're to do it in the Lord. We're going to give an account to God one day for our joyfulness or our lack thereof then we must be committed to the pursuit of true joy in our lives. Be committed, church. Brothers and sisters, be committed. Again, if true joylessness, if this is true, joylessness is a bane upon our Christian church. It is a stain upon our gathering. It is a stain upon us as individuals if it lacks thereof. If there is no rejoicing, if there is no joy. Thus we are to repent. We are to repent. But you may be saying, well, how in the world do I do that? It seems like it's a, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. But at the same time, you're telling me to pursue it, to pursue that gift. And I would say yes. Pursue that gift um, primarily by pursuing the means by which the joy comes. But the fruit of the Spirit comes through the means that God's ordained. And it is our responsibility to put ourselves in the, in the, in the, the path of those means. Okay? The true Christian joy, as I mentioned earlier from another brother, um, is the result of, of truth in Christ. Thus we should flood our minds with the truth of the gospel. That, that that true joy is the result. Remember, if, if true joy comes in the presence of God, then it is imperative that, that God's presence be among us. And how in the world is it that God is designed for that to be a reality? Well, we're going to go back to the ABCs of Christianity. I don't have anything paramount or complicated for you this morning. You must be in the Scriptures. You must be in the Word. You must be in prayer. We read those verses earlier, right? John 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you. Why? That my joy might remain in you. He said in John 16, that until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive such that your joy may be full. That we must maintain a relationship and communion with God such that His presence is made known to us by the power of the Spirit through a relationship in the Word and in prayer. I'll guarantee you, you have no joy if you have not been in the Word. 
You know, I'll guarantee you that you are a joyless Christian if you have not communed with God this week in prayer. It's, it's, it's basic and it's fundamental, I know, but it is so true. I've never met a joyful Christian who truly has hope in God and has an amount of faith who is not regularly treading the, the, the paths of Scripture. That if you're going to fight for joy, if you're going to pursue it, then you must pursue Christ and the means that He is given. Thus, Scripture reading and prayer. Like it has to be essential. If joy is essential, then the means that to, by which those things come that bring the presence of Christ and the truth, to, the, the truth of Christ in, the, uh, in my soul, thus that it brings the presence of Christ to my soul, then, then, then we have to have it. We have to have it. If you're a fight for joy, a pursuit of joy in Christ, and a joyful Christian life is a, is a pursuit of Christ in the Word and in prayer. Without it, you will not have it. You will not. His promises will not be nigh. His word, His warmness, his, his, the warmth of His character and His presence will not be near. You will not be able to hear Him in the controversies and circumstances of a life. He, he, he will rarely come. Not to say that He can't. But the normal means by which God communes with His people is that. But it's not only that, it's in the fellowship of God's people. You must, you must be active among God's people. First Thessalonians 3, 9. For what thanks we can render to God for you. For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. Paul's saying, man, you at Thessalonica, you bring me so much joy. How can I thank you? How can I thank God? The point is that Paul could see the presence of Christ, the glory of Christ. As we gather this morning, as we gather this morning and Christ is among us, He's walking among the candlesticks, His presence is uniquely upon us. It should cause us so much joy. And what a crime it is. This morning for us to gather together and joy not be the product of it. And if joy be not in some sense the product of it, we could almost argue if it's not regularly. I understand there's different temperaments, there's different types of, of uh, you know, sermons, there's different types of, of, of circumstances. That, that, that sometimes one, one temperament will overwhelm the sense of the service, be reverence or awe or joy. Um, that, that these are all born of God. But if we can consistently gather together over months at a time and joy is not in some sense part of the gathering of God's people, then I would almost argue that Christ is not here. That He's not walking among the candlesticks. Why? Because in His presence is the fullness of joy, even in the midst of sorrow, that when God's uh, presence is made known, joy is a result of it. And Paul argues that, you know. And he does that with Philippi as well, over and over again. You know? Like, you bring me so much joy. Church, you bring me so much joy. You do. In the service, you know, you think that you're the benefactors of my, uh, of my service, but I want you to know that on many days, many weeks, many months, that I am only as faithful because of the joy that God produces in my service to you. I am the one at your debt. Um, that it is a joy to serve you. Why? Because in serving you, Christ makes Himself known to me. 
In the scriptures, as I labor and as I give myself over on some weeks, and uh, th- th- there is this 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 tension in my own life and and, and desire sometimes to to give up or to turn back. And God will bring you before my mind or God will bring a saint to be served. And as I wash your feet, God overwhelms me with the joy of Christ. You know, God has created this environment in my life because he knows in some sense what I need to, to keep me striving for faithfulness. And one of those is the joy of the service of God's people. Because in it, Christ is manifested. I want to give you one more. Not only do you put yourselves in uh, scripture, pursue scripture reading and prayer, um, the fellowship of God's people, but finally, um, uh, obedience. Obedience. Uh, just a wonderful verse for me this week, and we'll be done, I promise. Um, John 14. Just opened up, you know, in another way. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them... It is He who loves me. And He who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love Him. And manifest myself to Him. You could translate that, make myself known. Show myself to Him. Display myself to Him. But in the obedience, so, so as you pursue Christ's God in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, in His Word, in prayer, in the fellowship of the saints, and you obey God as He's leading, guiding, and directing you. And the reality is, is that God will give you more of Himself. There is a greater disclosure in the revelation of God, particularly in Christ, to the hearts of those who lovingly obey Him. That He promises that when I forsake sin and obediently follow Him, I see Him more and more. And the more and more that I see Him, the more that I enjoy Him, and the more that I take less pleasure in the things of the world. Man, what a way to fight sin. You know? Like, like, delight yourself in the Lord. Preach to yourself that in the midst of the thousand things that strive for your attention and your soul this week. That as the pleasure begins to entice you, do not allow it to lie to you. It promises pleasure, but it robs you of true joy. It lies about the pleasure and delight delight that it promises. That it flees as soon as it arrives and it robs you of the true joy, the true pleasure, and the true delight which is found in Christ. That as long as you entice yourself with the pleasures of this world, the presence of Christ will be as far from you as it has ever been. And your joy will be robbed. That yes, there is true pleasure there. But it's only for a season. But the true joy that God offers um, will be robbed in the midst of that disobedience. So obey God. And know that as you lovingly obey Him, the fellowship will be much sweeter And your joy will be full. Why? Because He will display His glory to you in immeasurable ways. That the command to pursue joy is the command to pursue Christ. You don't pursue joy for joy's sake. Otherwise, it's idolatry. It's worship of an affection. But know this, that when you find Him, when you see Him, when He is revealed, there will be joy in His presence. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the duty to which we're called. I love it. John Calvin on this text says, the chief activity of the soul is to aspire to happiness in God. 
Have you ever wondered why that old Westminster Catechism says, you know, what is the chief end of man? The Puritans believed that it was in part to enjoy God, to enjoy Him. It was the worship of God. It was to enjoy Him. Thus, John Calvin writes. And end with a quote by Spurgeon. So he says, he's speaking of eternity. He says, so you may feed. And so you may drink until you come into the mount of God. Where you'll see his face unveiled, standing in exceeding brightness. Shall know his glory, being glorified with the saved. And he says these words. And this was the exhortation challenged in my own heart. He said, till then be happy. If the present be dreary, it'll soon be over. Oh, but a little while and we'll be transferred from these seats below the thrones above. We shall go from place of aching brows to the place of their weary crowns. From the place of mistake and error and sin and consequent grief to the place where they are without fault before the throne of God. For they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Men, may this mark us as men. Church, may this mark us as people. May those who join us in this morning or in the future to come, may they say sorrows mark the world, but this morning I met a happy people. And they were more than simply happy. They were happy in their God. I don't understand it. It is a reality nonetheless and a reality that still haunts me to this day. Why am I not so happy as these people? Spurgeon continues in another part. He says, there's a marvelous medicinal power in joy. Most medicines are distasteful, but this, which is the best of all medicines, is sweet to the taste, comforting to the heart. And this blessed joy is very contagious. One dolorous uh, dolorous spirit brings a kind of plague into the house. One person who is a wretch seems to stop all the birds from singing wherever he goes, but the grace of joy is contagious. Holy joy will oil the wheels of your life's machinery. Holy joy will strengthen your daily labor. Holy joy will beautify you and give you an influence over the lives of others. And I think he's right. I think he's right. So yes, one day, church, we will see him face to face and there will be joy forevermore. But until then, embrace the gift that God has given you. Until then, be a happy people. Um, such that it overflows not only in this house, but into the world. May they say, we don't know what we saw this morning, but it, we saw a happy people. Um, such that it haunts them. That God may even use it to bring them to himself. Um, and I trust that there is a true power in the joy of the saints. So church... I exhort you with the command of God, Paul himself, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the text. We thank you, Father, for the whole counsel of God. We thank you particularly this morning for your spirit and Paul. What a treasure he is to us, Father. And what a treasure we have in the saints. Not only in Paul himself, Father, but in one another. What a true joy it's been to serve. Not only you, Father, but to serve you in the midst of your people. Father, we pray that you would just continue to cultivate a joyfulness of spirit among us such that at times it's overwhelming, Father. Um, Because there's no doubt that we need that as a tool to serve in this world. Father, with all the sorrow, all the difficulty, all the pain, we know that, Father, we're we're not clueless to that. 
But at the same time, we recognize that in the midst of it, Lord, um, you can use this joy to help us to stand firm, to stand fast. So, Father, whatever sin may be in our lives that are keeping us from your presence, help us to pursue Christ and restore our joy forevermore. Father, may it not be like you, Odia and Syntyche. Um, we're no doubt they were, they were robbed of the joy that you had purchased for them and your son. Father, if there be any sin among us, may we war with the, with the faithful obedience that you've commanded us by the power of your spirit to restore that. Father, may reconciliation be full and free um, such that we enter into the presence of Christ and in his presence we, we, we reap the reward of joy. Father, help us not to be simply giddy, smiling people who have no exceeding gladness. But as the truth of God is brought to bear upon our own souls, may it produce in us by the power of the Spirit a joy that is unnatural and supernatural, such that, Father, it could be said of us this morning and that we were a happy people in God. And Father, would you help my own soul to help me be a happy husband in the Lord? To be a happy pastor, Father, in Christ. To be a joyful father. May my children, Father, remember me for many things. But they may, may they remember the joy that just overwhelmed the home. And because I was happy in Christ. Father, may they remember that all their days. And may it influence change even in their lives. Even on this day, Father, we call Father's Day. Um, we're reminded of the great joy that the Father had in the Son. And the delight that the Son had in the Father. Father, may we too delight in the Son this morning. And may it cause us to delight in all things that you've given. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing. Number 23. All four verses. Joyful, joyful. 